0: Hello, I'm Noni Ford, your producer for this episode of American Student Radio. Last semester, I studied abroad in England, and during my trip, I did a lot of traveling. When people heard I was American, they rushed to ask me questions about certain eccentric American foods and about my experiences growing up here. What I immediately realized was the commonality between many people's questions was that they wanted to know if I'd ever visited California, and upon my answer, wanted to hear every detail I had remembered about my last visit. That's when I realized that California, this place that had once been home to my family and that was where I saw my career heading, was a symbol of dreams for so many. Through their fascination, I saw California for all its mystery and glitz, but also as someone who'd actually been there, I was quick to interject about its problems such as droughts, wildfires, and traffic. But alas, even the detractors seemed to thrill people and did not deter them from possibly visiting in the future. So, I decided to dedicate this episode of American Senate Radio to the great state of California. But the show isn't just about Cali, it's also about our concept of perfect places. Without further ado, I present to you California, Idealized Places, and Dreamlands.
1: From (laughs) Blo- From,
2: uh, live? What is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again?
3: From Indiana University in Bloomington.
2: From Indiana University in Bloomington.
3: This is- This is- This is American Student Radio.
2: Real chill. Real chill,
0: Aliens conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. After graduating from the University of Akron in 2015, Craig Mellinger packed up his car and drove to North Hollywood, California to pursue a career in screenwriting. Not long into his journey, Mellinger realized that California was not what he imagined and temporarily became homeless. Rick Brewer caught up with Craig over the phone. He brings us the story.
4: I remember there was a a day where I was in my car in Topanga Canyon and I was running out of money and I had no job prospects. Uh, I'd, I'd done... 10 plus interviews none of it was working out so I was sitting in my car which literally just with my my head in my hands I said what am I going to do I I didn't have enough money to pay for gas to drive home and I was running out of money to keep the storage unit and it was to the point where I was I was eating I was at Vons which is like the big market store here they have a bakery so I would get a pack of bagels which was like four dollars and I would eat two bagels a day that was pretty much my diet for that month and a half or two months that I was in my car just put in perspective the the apartment I was sharing a studio apartment with two other people and rent was four hundred dollars per person per month and it was a, a just terrible apartment terrible apartment complex Uh, It it was very different from Akron, Ohio, uh, where if you pay $1,200 a month for an apartment, it's pretty nice. (laughs) So instead of paying the $400 a month, uh, which was rare also, uh, it would have been more if I lived somewhere else, uh, guaranteed. So instead of paying a couple hundred dollars a month minimum for an apartment, I decided to spend like $75 a month, put my stuff into a storage unit. And then my car is a hatchback. I can put the back seats down and uh just long enough for me to stretch out. Uh, so I kept my some blankets and my sleeping bag and then just had a, a bag of clothes basically and uh just lived in my car for about two about two months after that. Mm-hmm. Left it was I spent most of my time in Santa Monica, so that's why I, there's a storage unit there that I put all my stuff in, put all my nice uh My interview clothes, so those were hanging up in there, and they were, (laughs) they stayed clean the whole time and ironed. And so, anytime I'd have an interview, I would get up early, go, go to my storage unit, change there, go to my interview, go back afterwards, and change into my normal clothes. And um, that was that was pretty much my life. Uh, I would go to the Y every morning for a while. I bounced around different YMTAs uh, because they had like week-long trial memberships that were free. So for a while, that's what I did. Uh, eventually, I just settled on on the Santa Monica YMCA, which was $50 a month. Uh, I had to place a shower. Every morning, I would go shoot around on the basketball court just to stay in some kind of physical condition. And that was my life. California was always... Uh, just opportunity to me and that's still basically what it is in my mind uh like I said earlier I wouldn't I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the career uh, that I would like to have I don't know what the future holds I don't know if I'll leave but it'll always um I mean I've I, I didn't do California how most people do it so to me it's the place that I was Place that I was homeless, <laughs> the, the place that I went on a whim. And I want it's, it's certainly not home, but it'll definitely have a place in my heart and my mind. Whether, whether I make a career here or not, it's a, I mean, it's a massive part of my life. It's only two years of 25, but it's a, the most important part. So it's, it's not just an asterisk. That's for sure.
0: Before Mellinger drove to California chasing his hopes and the promise of new opportunities that California represents to so many, there were settlers in the 1800s trying to do the same. The growth of America led many families to travel through dangerous terrain to find better futures for their children and themselves. Next, Nick Town will take us through one group's journey for success and happiness.
5: Cool wind brushes off the face of over 80 men, women, and children trapped in the Sierra Nevada mountains. The year is 1846. With each inch of snow, dreams of California's coastal climate begin to disappear, hope fleeting faster than the dwindling food supply. Bodies pile the surrounding snowbanks. Mothers, sons, daughters. The people still alive gather around a fire, freezing. The year, 1846. There is no way to contact any help no radio, completely isolated. They start their journey in Springfield, Illinois. The head of one family, James Reed, had hopes of moving a political career out to California. Stories of the rich, fertile soil reached from coast to coast. Many of the travelers decided to move because of the opportunity and riches that may wait for them. The Reed family, along with more than 80 others, leave Illinois mid-1846, They packed their belongings into a wagon, leaving comfort behind. This particular caravan set out two years before the start of the California Gold Rush, a history event that would bring hundreds of thousands of Americans swarming to California. They were optimistic for a better life on the West Coast. Their carriages were some of the finest that money could buy. They had heard of a shortcut that may cut two weeks off of their trip, and so instead of going around the Sierra Nevada Mountains, they opted for the shortcut. It would take them directly through the mountains. However, they were the last major caravan of the season. The beginning of the trip was pretty agreeable, nothing but minor hiccups. They reached Sierra Nevada by November of 1846. The snow was already falling, but they continued on. It wasn't long before they were stranded, the snow piling in around them. After a month of being trapped they decided to send fifteen of their best men out in search of civilization. It took little time for the cold to overcome these brave men. With food running out, they had to decide what their next food source would be. The decision was made much easier after several members of the search team succumbed to the Sierra Nevada's cold grip. They would feed the remaining seven. With the help of their fallen companions, the remaining men were able to find civilization, Shortly after arriving, they decided next to organize search and rescue parties for the friends and families left back in the mountains. After arriving back at camp, the hopeful men were greeted with a much more grisly sight than they had hoped for. The group that had entered the mountains, more than eighty. After the final rescue efforts had collected their last group of immigrants, roughly forty-five made it the following spring. Humans, much like all other animals, when faced with impossible odds, choose to survive. This story is no exception to that rule. Many of the travelers had succumbed to sickness, cold, or starvation already. Those left surviving at the camp turned to these bodies. Fresh meat. It could sustain them at least long enough to be rescued. Those seven men that had made it to civilization now returned to find the mangled bodies of families and loved ones. Flesh stripped from the bone, now filling the bellies of the surviving few. Their dreams of the west coast, the journey they were all looking to deliver them to a better place, extinguished by the cold, emotionless winter. The Donner Party is arguably the most famous tragedy to travel across the United States. This tale has not hindered the love and longing for the United States' West Coast. Still, thousands find themselves uprooted, traveling to California and other idealized places in search of opportunity and happiness. Many of those who make the trip, whether it be to California or wherever your idealized place may be, are met with a tougher road than they expected ignoring that sometimes your imagination is much more pleasant than reality.
0: Champagne, Central California, Bloomington. These places, believe it or not, have something in common. Vineyards. In this next piece, ASR goes wine tasting at Oliver Winery, and producer Emily Miles learns that the classic beverage may be more than she imagined.
2: I had this image of good wine. See, it's bottled in France or California— There has to be some, like, Jerry Mulligan playing. The glass rests in the hand of an Ava Gardner character.
6: Anyone else wish to join me in um, a little more of the grape? You seem to have a real fondness for that wine, Miss Gilling. Oh, any year, any model, they all bring out my better nature.
2: With romance and sophistication. This good wine, it is not for me. But ASR producers Sarah Panfill and Sophia Salaby went to Oliver Winery with me anyway. At 10 a.m. that Saturday morning, we watched a small crowd of twenty-somethings pour out of a limousine and head toward the tasting room. We got out of my dodge and followed. Bush branches and flower petals reached for us as we wound past a waterfall onto the porch, through the doors... Okay, perhaps this is a little unfairly dreamy, but there we were. A semi-retired woman named Kathleen tended to our place at the end of the long bar.
0: I am from Indiana originally, but I lived in California for 30 years.
2: Sarah had just returned from studying abroad in France. I got really acclimated to the wine culture, and it was not this luxe experience. Like, in places where wine is actually, like, cemented into the culture, it's considered, like, everyday, like, integrated. Like, of course you get a bottle of wine. Of course you go to a tasting on a weekend. you know, like... That's just how it is. And Sophia had been to Oliver a few times in the past few months.
7: Like, the weirdest thing about this whole experience, about doing the tasting, is when you're like, oh, I'll try this wine. As they're pouring, they kind of give you, like, a description of the wine, but they use a lot of terms that I don't know and I kind of don't care about. They're like, it's been cold fermented in a steel container, and I'm like, what does that even mean?
2: So we jumped in, with a comparison between Pinot Grigios from California and the local Creek Bend Vineyard. And then we took a vote.
7: I kind of like the California one. I don't know.
2: I prefer the California. And I like this one. Maybe I wasn't doing it right. Maybe I just didn't know how to taste. I mean, the way I think that you look by sight. Then you smell, and then you would swirl after. I learned, like, this. Um, But, yeah, and then you would again smell the aroma, this time with the more emboldened flavor because you've swirled. And then finally, the last is is to taste and to sip.
7: I could, like, really smell strawberries and, like, sniffing it, but I'm still trying to work out the taste. Like, maybe, I don't know, dirt? (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm trying to be a sommelier right now. It's not working.
0: It's really in the taste of the beholder. Because we all bring something different to the table, and what it smells like and what it tastes like is very different.
2: Okay, so it's a subjective thing, right. And that said, maybe Indiana wine can be good. I mean, after all, if the experience of wine is so different from culture to culture, maybe we just have to see it swirl, sniff, sip, savor it in the context it's in.
0: California didn't always have wines or they weren't as popular as they are now. But I think people are finding that indeed you can have good wines and good grapes from a lot of places.
7: Interesting, so maybe in 20 years we'll be like, oh, Indiana wines. Could
2: be. (laughs) So if good wine can come from the Hoosier state, what's left of this image of a well-to-do woman with an evening gown and dark curls piled perfectly on top of her head? She's still there. But so am I. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Emily Miles.
0: If you want to see pictures and video from Emily's piece, follow ASR Voice on Twitter. One of the staples of California is Disneyland, one of the most visited theme parks, beloved by children, parents, couples, and single adults. It can be a place filled with happiness for some and traumatic childhood experiences for others. Where do you go if your marriage is falling apart and your child is taken to arson? Disneyland, of course. In this fictional piece, Elliot, Maggie, and Sammy go to the theme park and see happiness in its various forms on the Wheel of Progress. They may even learn, in classic Disney form, to accept each other for all their quirks. Or maybe not.
6: Act 1. It's my son Sammy's 13th birthday. i have been planning it for weeks, making small sacrifices to the gods of luck and fortune. Still... Like the worry ward I was. I spent entire nights awake, wandering the halls, thinking with horror how an errant storm front would ruin everything. Sammy was an exceptionally fragile boy, you see. He popped out of the oven too soon, and some days, more than others, he seemed undone. Not quite there. And rain on this milestone, a cloud darkening the sky. Maggie said I worried too much, but when she said it, I had the sense that she was saying a whole lot more. She didn't want the party. She hated all good, wholesome things. But the day was perfect. The sun smiling and the clouds like great slow ships. In the front yard was a giant elephant, a bouncy house. Kids jumped around in its stomach, screaming. In the backyard was Sammy's favorite TV character, the Smellephant. Smelephant was a detective elephant who sniffed out crimes and solved them using deductive reasoning. But our Smelephant was just some poor guy stuck in an elephant costume getting paid $15 an hour. Sammy got him pretending to search for the body of Jimmy Hoffa. I didn't like it, but I couldn't say no. Anyways, everything else was going so well. I was laying on my bed, savoring the creamy center of a well put together party, when Maggie darkened the doorway.
1: We need to talk. Oh, boy. Please, Elliot. Just listen.
6: I'm listening. Just ignore the sound of my frantically beating heart.
1: I just wanted to say...
6: What? Oh, God, you want a divorce, don't you? I don't know. Is it... is it me?
1: Look, I come home every night to the same old house, to the same old people. We say the same old things the same old way. It doesn't feel real, you know? Like, sometimes it feels like we're reading a script and not actually meaning what we say.
6: Sammy and I are same old people.
1: That's not what I meant.
6: I don't want you to leave, Maggie. Things would become inconvenient. Not inconvenient, that, that's not what I meant to say. I, I meant to say, why don't we see someone?
1: Of course, the neurotic goes immediately to therapy. Let's spend hours cataloging our petty discontents and try to resolve them one by one. It could help. The truth is, Elliot, The truth is that I find you dull and pedestrian. I can't help but remember when we used to laugh at those people who settled, who took the two-car garage and the pension plan over, well, living ecstatically. I mean, God, Elliot, we used to talk about living out of a van. We used to talk about disappearing into the woods and making campfires and building a house out of trees that we cut down ourselves.
6: Those were dreams. Only dreams.
1: Yes, but they were mine.
6: I didn't know you thought I was serious.
1: I didn't think you'd mislead me.
6: Maggie went to the window. Her body blocked the sun, darkened the room. I felt cold.
1: I don't want to alarm you, but Sam's lighting our hydrangea bushes on fire.
3: Act Two. In the middle of the night, Dad came running into my room. Pack your bags, Sammy boy. We're going to Disneyland. All I could think was, what? Disneyland? With all the creepy-talking bipedal animals? Why wouldn't we just go to, like, Chernobyl instead if we wanted that? Mom came in. I knew that look of hers. That look of holding in something large. Like trillions of gallons of water large. It was the same look all adults have when they say that Santa Claus exists.
1: Surprise, honey. We're going to Disneyland.
3: Look how excited he is. Um... We are... We... I'm, um, leaving? As soon as you get your sorry butt moving. So, this is how it was going to be. I was going to have to play along to keep the peace. Doesn't he look excited? I think he may even be more excited than me. And that's really excited. We flew out. 30,000 feet in the air. It was dark, lonely, and cold. Everything below us was empty. A baby cried most of the flight. She fell asleep over Nevada. We fell back three hours flying from Indiana to California, so it was still dark when we flew into Orange County, home of Disneyland. But look at all the city lights. All those people already awake.
1: We're still awake.
3: Other than small comments like these, they barely talked to each other. I sat between them, and sometimes I felt like I was being torn apart. What time is it? I don't know. There's a three hour difference. Don't you have your watch?
1: I forgot it at home.
3: must be like 5am.
6: I feel awake. How about you, Sammy Boy?
1: Don't call him that.
6: What's wrong with Sammy Boy? I've always called
3: him Sammy Boy.
1: You've never called him Sammy Boy.
3: I existed in a state of constant nausea. It was like eternal motion sickness. I call him Sammy Boy all the time.
1: Maybe you should call him Sam from now on.
3: We landed. My ears were stuffed. Everything sounded like water. He'd tell me if you minded. Would he? I had moments when the whole world became still and it all came bursting out of me like a swollen pimple suddenly popping. My vision blurred to white. It looked like falling snow. I was in a snowstorm, and I couldn't hear anything. Eventually, I found my way out. Sammy boy? What time does the park open, anyways?
1: Act 3. The sun at last caught up with us appearing in the east like a great big shining baby's head. We were riding a spinning Dumbo ride, flying. Sam was saying something in my ear.
3: Look at Dad!
1: Elliot was riding alone in the Dumbo in front of us. He had his arms thrown in the air, wild and free. We were flying towards the sun on the backs of Elephant. For breakfast, we picked up hot dogs. The park was beginning to fill up with people. Tall people, short people, fat people, skinny people, ugly people, beautiful people. But far too many people. I could sense that we were being asked of too much right now after fleeing from our invisible, everyday sadness. We sought refuge in Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland being a theme park within a theme park. It was Disneyland's idea of the
4: future. This in contact with a test. One, two, three, four.
3: What's that ride? The Wheel of Progress.
1: We ran, we jumped, we scrambled, we leapt, until finally... We were inside the Wheel of Progress, air conditioned, safe. It was a show. We sat in chairs and witnessed before us on stage, performances by underpaid actors playing happy and idyllic family scenes. First, the fifties, the atomic age. Husband, wife, kid. There was a big white shaggy dog laying on a rug. The wife pulled a dozen eggs from the refrigerator, smiling serenely. I was entranced by her, I wanted to be her, except no. I'd hate being her. I wanted her to be me. Her to take my place and me be somewhere else. The floor moved and we spun around to the sixties. This was the wheel part, the progress part. Husband, wife, kid, dog again. The wife was looking at me. She flashed a peace sign. We spun around and around for the decades until we reached an unknown future. Husband, wife, kid, dog. Served by a robotic butler. Their happiness was sublime, they said,
6: My flying car gets a thousand miles to
3: the gallon of sunshine.
1: Automation has liberated me. I hardly know what to do now. Really, who am I?
3: Christmas time is the best. I send Santa voicemail and tell him what I want. Hey Santa, I want a new playbox this year. Can you hear me? Can you? Hello?
1: After the show, we went to our hotel. Our room had only one bed, a king, large and welcoming. We all collapsed, exhausted. It felt like we'd been running for days on end, trying to outrun a spreading plague. Someone turned off the light. In the darkness, we whispered pieces from the show to each other.
6: I'm a happy family man who has developed the perfect work-life balance, all thanks to technology.
1: This newfangled dishwasher is making me irrelevant. What's the draft,
6: Mommy? The future is so bright
3: now, thanks to technology.
1: Who knows what lays just around the corner?
3: Mommy! Mommy? Yes, dear? Can I go play outside? Jack and Tom invited me to play Americans in Viet Cong.
1: Of course, dear. Be safe.
3: Knock him dead, killer. My son. Our son. Our son, Sam.
0: I hope all you listeners enjoyed this episode of American Student Radio and learned some new things about the great state of California and also about our fascination of idealized places. Next week's episode of ASR will be hosted by Emily with the theme Up There. Hope everyone tunes in again. This is ASR, and we have shows every Sunday at noon, but also be sure to check out all of our content on iTunes and our SoundCloud page. I'd like to thank all three new producers that made pieces for this show. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University, Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIOX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com American-student-radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.